6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Patriarchs of Israel. Here's what a well-stocked medicine cabinet would have in the days of Egypt. Lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, moisture from pig's ears, milk goose grease, ass's hooves, animal fats, excrement from animals of human, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and flies. That's what you would stock your medicine. Does it sound kind of weird to you? It better. <laughs> what's astonishing, what's astonishing is these quaint, bizarre beliefs of the Egyptian culture that was inculcated in the leadership never finds its way into Moses' writings. What's interesting is not only what's in the Bible, what's interesting is what's not in the Bible. You will find none of these superstitions, none of these weird things. In fact, those things which look weird in the Bible at first, when we investigate, turn out to be discoveries of significant kinds. Well, let's get on to Abram in chapter uh, 18. Abraham gets, he's by the Oaks of Mamre, and he gets three visitors. This is a very famous incident, so we, we obviously can't get all the incidents in his life because there's much there, but these three visitors show up, and they're interesting characters because, first of all, Abraham hurries to them and then hurried back to the tent. He ran to the herd to make dinner and had his servant hurried. You can tell that Abraham realizes who these three people are. You know who they are? God and two angels, posing as men. They look like men. Abraham bowed low before them. He got water to wash their feet. He served them freshly baked bread, a choice calf, curds and milk. And if you have a Jewish friend, ask him how on earth did he serve a non-kosher meal? But I'll leave that one alone. I'll just throw that out there so you can indulge in some mischief with your Jewish friends. He also stood while they were eating. What on earth is going on here? And obviously these three men are, are, are the Lord and two angels. And he gives them three measures of meal, which from that day on in the Jewish and Arabic cultures is the fellowship offering. And that, you need to understand that when you get to Matthew 18 to understand what the three measures of meal are dealing with there. It'll surprise you. These three visitors confirm to Abraham and Sarai that a son from Sarah will be con was confirmed. She's going to be 100 years old, and she laughs when she hears this. Am I in my old age going to have pleasure, she says? You laughed. Oh, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did, they said. Anyway, a little dialogue. But the funny part about this is God says, is Abraham not my friend? Should I not tell him what I'm going to do? So what he does there in Genesis 18, he explains to God that these two, his two angels are going to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
For the rest of that chapter, you almost have to imagine a New York Jewish accent as you read the text. Because Abraham decides to negotiate with God. Okay? Will not the God of the universe do right? What if there's 50 righteous in the land? Will you, would you spare, would you wipe the land for the, he says, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the land. 50. God says, no, then I won't do it. Well, what if there's five short of 50? What if there's 45? God says, if there's 45 righteous, I won't do it. He says, well, what if there's 40? If there's 40, I won't do it. Abraham, you know, he has what we call, uh, what the Jews call chutzpah. Okay? Chutzpah is a strange, untranslatable word. Uh, it, it, there are many stories that try to demonstrate what chutzpah is. Chutzpah is when a guy murders his mother and father, then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. See? That's chutzpah, see? Uh, he goes to a guy and he says, what if there's 30 righteous? If there's 30, I won't do it. I says, well, let me, would you believe 20? God says, if there's 20, I won't do it. And then Abraham says, he knows he's pushing his luck here. He's pretty, I'll do it just one more time. I'll just say this one more time. Suppose there's 10 righteous, will you spare the city? And he says, if there's 10 righteous, I won't do it. And Abraham breaks off, right? But when chapter 19 comes and the two angels go down there to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, something very strange to notice in the text. The angels are down there to get Lot out of town first. But what's interesting, if you read the text carefully, it wasn't optional. The angels point out to Lot they can't do their job until Lot is out of there. What this implies is that if Abraham had said, suppose there's one righteous... God would spare it for the one. And I mention this because I believe this pulls the rug out from under those that like to theorize about a partial rapture and so forth. But we'll, go, we'll move on. Sodom, chapter 19, of course, these two angels visit Lot. The homosexuals seek the visitors. And it's interesting that the entire town is at the door trying to abuse these two visitors that Lot has. Lot even offers the crowd this mob that are out to uh, abuse these visitors, he offers them his virgin daughters rather than let his guests be violated. That shocks us. I mean, we can't... It's astonishing. It does indicate that Lot recognized he had something on his hands other than just two visitors. The angel, of course, blind the attackers so they can't even find the door. Lot's family is evacuated. But if you read the text carefully, it's a prerequisite condition to the judgment that Lot be out of there. And it's, the reason I emphasize this is Jesus himself likened his return to those days. So you need to do a little homework and understand that. You won't understand Luke 17 unless you really understand Genesis 19. And of course, all the way through there, we have the, the theme being hit, the flesh versus spirit. Uh, Abraham was 430 years before the law. So promises of God preceded the law. So the law cannot disannul his promises. And that's an argument Paul makes in Galatians. Because don't assume that 
the law is required for those benefits because the benefits were committed before the law was even uh, ordained. Ishmael versus Isaac is contrasted also. The two sons, the sons of two principles, the flesh and the spirit. Ishmael, the son of the flesh, Isaac, the son of the spirit. Ishmael, the flesh, and also of unbelief. The son of the bondwoman will not be heir, Paul declares. And Isaac, of course, is the son of the promise in response to the faith. And the ultimate triumph of faith is the offering of Isaac, which we're going to get to in a minute here. In fact, let's just jump in and get Genesis 22. This, this is one of those chapters that we're going to pause and take a little more carefully because it's too pivotal and too widely misunderstood. God tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac on a mountain. God is ordaining child sacrifice? You've got to be kidding. That's not what it's about at all. People who think so just have, are, 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 are just uninformed. The Bible tells us in Hosea 12, verse 10, God says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and used similitudes by ministry of the prophets. God indulges in what you and I would call figures of speech or metaphors, and there are many different kinds. There's a thing called a simile. There's a thing called an allegory. There's a thing called a metaphor. There are hypocatastasis. A type, an analogy. These are figures of speech. Do you know how many different kinds of figures of speech are in the Bible? Over 200 different kinds of figures of speech. And they are cataloged for you in our book. We have a book called Cosmic Codes, and one of the appendices is a list of these two, several hundred of these. Describe, defines what they are and gives you examples in verses where they are used. There are figures of speech in the Bible. That's why I don't say anymore to people who are saying, you take the Bible literally. I do take the Bible literally, but when I say that, they don't know what I'm talking about. When you take the Bible literally, then you think God has feathers because of Psalm 91. Under his feathers, actually. No, that's a figure of speech, obviously. Taking it literally doesn't deny the rhetorical device of figures of speech. What I usually, what I've learned to say when I'm on a radio interview or something, we take the Bible seriously. And when that gets the other guy mad, I know I've struck gold. Because he doesn't want to admit he doesn't take it as seriously as we do, but we take it more literally than he does. So anyway, so there are figures of speech. One of these figures of speech is what's called in scholarship a type. You and I would use the term in our vocabulary as a model. If you build a house of complicated vertical uh, aspects, you'll make a three-dimensional model of it. If, you have an, if you're designing an airplane wing, you'll make a mathematical model of the airplane wing to see how it's going to behave under buffeting and so forth. We make models of things, sometimes mathematical, sometimes physical, whatever. Those are models. Well, a model in the scripture, we use the term type. It's a, a figure, an example of something in the future. We're going to look at the classic model in the Bible called Genesis 22. It has a Hebrew name called the Akedah. Genesis chapter 1, God says, he says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, here, behold, here am I. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, this is a pretty interesting thing. Notice he says, thine only son, Isaac. See, Ishmael is not an issue. He's the son of the flesh, not the spirit. So for, as far as God's concerned, he has one son, the son of the promise, the son Isaac. 
There's another principle in the Scripture you want to be sensitive to. It's called by the scholars the law of first mention. When a thing is mentioned the first time in the Bible, it usually is profoundly significant. It's usually definitive for some reason. You'll notice here in this passage, Take now thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. This is the place in the Bible that the word love first appears. And it's significant because what this should echo to you, because we have a father and a son he loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 should echo, in effect, from this verse, as you'll see before we're finished. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. By the time you get to Genesis 22, Abraham has really learned his lessons. He's had a lot of fallbacks. He's had a lot of lapses, a lot of problems. He's learned from these. When you get to Genesis 22, God says, Offer your son. The next morning he takes off to do it. He doesn't mess around. Abraham rose up early in the morning. Saddle his ass and took, notice, he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. So there's four guys, Abraham, Isaac, two young men, and their donkey. Clave the wood, the burnt offering, rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. He just takes off early next morning. No messing around. Jail, pray about it. No, no, he obeys. And they go from Beersheba which is a three-day journey south of Jerusalem to that region. Jerusalem isn't there. It, Salem is, but Melchizedek and all that. We saw a few chapters earlier, but I put Jerusalem on the map so you'll recognize the geography here. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. In the New Testament, we'll learn that as far as Abraham's concerned, Isaac was dead to Abraham when the commandment came. When God says, offer your son, as far as Abraham's, he's, he's good as dead. On the third day after the trip, Isaac will be returned to Abraham. So how long was Isaac gone? Three days. That's prophetic of the three days in the tomb, by the way. We'll go on here. Abraham said unto his young man, Abide ye here with the ass. I and the land will go yonder, worship, and come again to you. I want you to notice that phrase. These two guys that have come, you stay here at the bottom of the hill. He's about 600 meters above sea level. He's going to go up this ridge system called Mount Moriah. Yep, it's going to go up about 177 meters to offer Isaac. But he says, we're going to come in. He's going to come in. Abraham believed that Isaac would be resurrected. See, he's got, he's got an interesting mindset here. God wants Abraham to offer Isaac. Abraham's point of view is God's got a problem. I don't have a problem. God promised me that Isaac's going to have children. So if God wants me to offer Isaac, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because God's promised me he's going to, I know God's going to keep his promises. Do you understand the faith here? You understand it's not just that he, he, faith, not just that he did what God said, that's part of it, of course, but he also understood that God keeps his promises. God finds a different way every day to ask each of us, do you trust me? Different ways. That's what he's doing here. Abraham took the young with wood of the burnt offering, laid upon Isaac his son, and took fire in his hand and the knife, and they went, both of them, in agreement. It says together in the, both of them together in the English, Hebrew implies they went in agreement. 
By the way, don't be victims of your Sunday school coloring books. There is reason to believe that Isaac was probably 30 years old here. He wasn't some kid that doesn't know what's going on. Isaac spoke to Abraham's father and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac ain't going up the hill, and he knows there's going to be an offering. Well, what's going on here, Dad? Uh, where's the lamb? And when I get to verse uh, 8, I always used to think this was just a stall. You know, Abram said, Abram said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they both went of them together. I first read that, well, you know, he hasn't told the kid what's really up here, you know. No. Notice what Abraham said to Isaac. My son, God will provide who? Himself a lamb for the burnt offering. I believe Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. And I prove that to you before we're through the next few verses here. Provide himself a lamb. They came to the place where God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He's ready to do the deed. And of course, an angel stops him at the last minute. Now, where are they? Mount Moriah is a ridge system between two valleys. A valley of the Teropian Valley to the west, on the other side of which is Mount Zion, technically. Mount Zion is used connotatively for the whole region, of course. The Kidron Valley, which separates Mount Moriah from Mount of Olives. So you've got a ridge, Mount of Olives to the east, Mount Zion to the west, and you've got this ridge between the two. At the base of the, and of course, along the south, you have the, the uh, Hinnom Valley. And at the bottom is a place called Salem, or Ophel, the city of David. It was a town back then, because Melchizedek was a king and priest there. I don't think that Abraham offered Isaac in town. I think he went north to the peak. As you go north, from, from about 600 meters above, so this is a topographic map, when you go from 600 meters above sea level to about the 741 meters sea level, there's a saddleback. That will later become the thrashing floor of Aruna that David will buy for, to, uh, in order to uh, have a site for the temple. But they don't stop there. That's still not the peak. You keep going further north, you get to about 777 uh, meters above sea level, and you get to a place that's called Golgotha. Now, Abraham may not have realized the detail to which he was enacting this, but 2,000 years later, on that very spot, another father will offer his son as an offering for sin. You and I are beneficiaries of a love letter that was written in blood, written on a wooden cross, erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Of course, the angel stops his, uh, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Paul in Romans 8 makes capital of this. He says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Speaking, of course, none other than Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting in Leviticus, when it talks about the key offerings here, it says, He shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord and the priests, and Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood round upon the altar. Notice that northward. It's north of the camp, north of the city, that this takes place. And that's where uh, Golgotha is, of course, relative to Jerusalem. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son, substitutionary ram, that would be codified in the law of Moses later. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. It is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That's the name that Abraham gives this spot. That name is prophetic. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. He realizes that this is prophetic, at least in some, how much he, he knew is, is hard to second guess, but clearly it is real. And the book of Hebrews capitalizes on this. In Hebrews chapter 11, New Testament, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. And once also he received him in a figure, in a figure or in a type. See, it was Abraham's belief in the resurrection of Isaac that caused him to be saved. It's our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're saved. That's what the gospel is all about. Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 15, first four verses. Get to the book of Revelation. It's all echoed again. Book of Revelation, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven or on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book and neither look thereon. And John says, I sobbed convulsively, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Wow. We don't understand what's going on, but John did. He wept convulsively. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood, not a lion, stood the Lamb as it had been slain having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth in all the earth. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, and we have the closing of the biggest escrow in the universe, where Jesus Christ takes possession of that which he purchased with his blood on a cross 2,000 years ago. Back to Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time, said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Then we get to verse 19. I want you to make a notice in your Bible. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Remember that verse. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Two chapters later, next chapter, in chapter 23, Sarah dies. There's a whole business there. Genesis 24, Abraham has another errand that he wants his business partner to do. He commissions Eliezer to gather a bride for Isaac, to go back to their home country and get a bride for Isaac. 
And Eliezer agrees to do this. He By the way, Eliezer is, yes, he's a servant, but he's actually his business partner. If Abraham had died without issue, Eliezer would have inherited his estate. Eliezer qualifies her by a well. She agrees to marry the bridegroom she has never met. On the way back, he gives her gifts. And he finally comes, when he gets back home to, our, to, to where we are, back to Beersheba, he joins her by, bridegroom at the well of Lahai Roy. What's going on here? Understand that Rebekah is picked by this Ella's servant to be the bride of Isaac. Okay. Abraham is in the role of what? The father. Remember Genesis 22? Abraham was in the role of the father. Isaac was in the role of the son. Offered, right? Here again, Abraham's the role of the father. Isaac again is a son, or in this case, the bridegroom. Okay. Eliezer is in the role of the Holy Spirit, sent to gather a bride for the son. And by the way, the word Eliezer, do you know what it means? In Hebrew? The comforter. Yeah, isn't that fun? But I want to come back now to Genesis 22, verse 19. Remember, they're up on the hill. They've done the deed. They're ready to go home. Verse 19 says, Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. They're up on the hill. Abraham and Isaac go up on the hill. They have the deal up there. Angel intervenes. Great. Abraham comes down the hill to these two young men they've left at the bottom of the hill, right? And they rose up and went together to Beersheba. Who's going home according to this verse? Abraham and two young men, right? Understand? When we read this, we take for granted, and I'm sure it's true, that Isaac was there too, right? But I want you to notice the Holy Spirit editing this text a little bit. Where's Isaac? Where's Isaac? The person of Isaac is personally edited out of the record. From the time that he's offered until he is united with his bride at the well of living water, two chapters later. The well of the high roys, the well of the living one who sees me, is what it technically says. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.